0: Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's episode, I am joined by a returning guest of the show, Dr. Matt Jordan. Matt was with us for episode 21 back in March 2020, and he's a razor-sharp S&C coach, performance consultant, and also educator. In this episode, we will be discussing the force-velocity curve and individualizing your considerations to the athlete in front of you. Then we'll also be discussing changing or optimizing movement patterns post-injury in quite a lot of depth. So a lot of great topics to sink your teeth into today. Matt, as you'll also hear in the episode, has a range of amazing courses that you can purchase and consume on his website, jordanstrength.com. And he has very kindly agreed to provide Informed Performance listeners of this episode 25% off of all of his educational courses until October 3rd. The code you'll need for this discount is InformPod 2021 all in uppercase. So definitely check that out on his website, jordanstrength.com. This episode of the Informed Performance podcast has been sponsored by VOL Performance, makers of Perforce Frame. Used by health and performance professionals for assessing and improving performance and rehabilitation, the Force Frame is a powerful solution for quickly and accurately testing isometric strength and imbalances. In addition to testing athletes, the Force Frame is also used to maintain and improve strength, offering over 130 isometric training protocols. As a portable and easy-to-use system, the Force Frame is designed to ensure every measurement can be accurately and reliably measured, time after time again. To learn more about the Force Frame, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. Let's crack on with today's episode. You're listening to Informed Performance with me, Andy McDonald, and here is today's episode with Dr. Matt Jordan. Matt Jordan, welcome back to Informed Performance, mate. Hey, thanks for having me, man. Good to, good to be here. No, it's good to get you back on and good to catch up. Um, so you were, of course, on the show with me for episode 21 in March 2020, I think, uh, which feels longer ago than it was. But for good measure, can you fill our listeners in on your background through to maybe your current day job, just in case this is someone's kind of first encounter of you?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, in a nutshell, uh, I... Uh, uh, I moved to the Olympic training center here in, uh, in Calgary many moons ago, I uh, was really fortunate to, uh, have been, uh, sort of mentored and, and obviously, uh, got to know personally, uh, Charles Pollican, who kind of exposed me to the career uh, path that I took, um, and obviously passed away a few years ago, but, um, Charles was a big, big influence in my life that kind of got me pointed in a direction. And long story short, as I spent the next, uh, you know, 15, 20 years, uh, as a sport physiologist and uh, strength and conditioning coach working with uh, several of Canada's Olympic teams. Um, that, uh, it was an amazing career, you know, working a lot, a lot with winter sport, but I, uh, across a, a range of sports for sure. American football, mixed martial arts, boxing, um, snowboarding, you know, all kinds of, all kinds of sports. Um, the main thing that sort of sparked a career change for me was after the Vancouver Olympics, honestly, just needing a a change in my life. Uh, I think a lot of coaches and practitioners get to that stage where they're, you know, they just are looking for um, a pivot. And that was exactly the case for me at at that point. It had been my fourth Olympic cycle and and, uh, I was just needing to, needing to sort of reevaluate my life and, uh, I got put back with alpine ski racing, and um, the athletes. Uh, anybody who's uh, involved with ski racing will know that the prevalence of ACL injury is just. I mean, it's like everyone, every every other athlete seems to to have uh, have an ACL injury at some point. And I um, I had always wanted to do kind of go back and get the PhD done, which I did, and I did a PhD in medical science, uh, which uh, the focus was trying to develop better better tests, better capacity to forecast recovery after ACL injury, and obviously better rehab and training that helps uh, injured athletes at large, but more specifically at the time was was, uh, elite Alpine ski racers, helping bridge the gap between their injury and and getting back to their pre-injury performance level. So, you know, I kind of say it's like we're putting, we're bridging the gap between sport performance and sport medicine and, uh, trying to put the performance in the rehab and and really helping athletes over the long term get back, uh, get back to where they were. So that's, uh, that's kind of the, the journey. Um, you know, as I went from, you know, sport physiologist and strength and conditioning coach to PhD medical science to, you know, now where I sit today, which is, um, you know, head up. I head up, uh, head, I head up uh, sports science at the Canadian Sport Institute Calgary, which is one of the Olympic training centers in Canada. Uh, I'm an assistant professor in kinesiology at U of C, and uh, still doing lots of consulting and online education and, and work in the area uh, around the, the fields of uh, sport performance and, and bridging the gap with uh, with uh, rehab and injury.
0: Cool, very good mixed, good mixed bag that um, I've no doubt keeps you incredibly busy. Um, yeah yeah, absolutely (laughs) for the for the listeners benefit I've completed your online education and I've I've genuinely got an enormous amount out of it both from a physio perspective and a strength conditioning perspective and a lot of today's conversation is going to be me cherry picking some of the topics that I enjoyed reading about uh, from your courses and you know firstly the information is just excellent and I think the way you've formatted and organized the content for the learner or for me in this situation, for my ability to just kind of work through at my own pace, I, th- I thought was brilliant. Um and and firstly just as inspired where how we at Inform Formants are now going to set up our educational platform at stealing your ideas. But um let's firstly just talk about what education you provide and for context, for the topics that you have, why did you choose them and and I guess contextually why do they matter?
1: Yeah, no, I mean uh really appreciate that that little segue there. Um you know, I I sometimes I sometimes feel fortunate that my journey in 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 high performance sport like in, in the in the realm of olympic sport. I mean, I kind of in I'm not the only person, so I'm not trying to say like I uh, I'm the only one who's benefited of this, but I sort of feel like I got classically trained in the world of, uh, you know, training methodology and uh, periodization, sports science, sport physiology, in the sense that many of my mentors along the way were just uh, highly, highly embedded in, uh, for decades in, in the world of, of, uh, of, of elite, elite, elite sport, elite training. And, um, you know, I think when, when you're working in Olympic sport, what i always find is nice is that you get these athletes for long periods of time so you get them you know when they're kind of 16 17 oftentimes and they you know you might have them under your wing for 15 years or more as they sort of transcend their careers and with all of those uh, sort of opportunities that present themselves one of the things that's absolutely clear is you can really start to now take a longitudinal approach to looking at sport performance and adaptation to training and 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 you can start to take a scientific approach in the sense that you can employ, you know, you can employ a lot of the knowledge that you would read in textbooks and you can actually use it on a day-to-day basis to really help these athletes find those, you know, small margins that they need to, to perform. And so when I was putting the course together, uh, it was really kind of that in mind, I guess, uh, as a fundamental overarching goal Um, And the other thing that was an overarching goal was the recognition that, you know, for, for someone like myself uh, as a strength and conditioning coach and sport physiologist, um, I would, I would find that I would be working with athletes who were injured and, you know, the physicians and the surgeons had their metrics that they were looking at to gauge readiness for getting back to sport. The physiotherapists would have theirs and then the conversation would come to us and it would say, you know, they would be like, all right, so, you know, now this athlete might be, let's say, say, an ACL injury. They're, you know, maybe 10 months post-surgery and they're kind of getting back onto more of a, a high level of, of uh, competition. And, you know, uh, they would be looking at us to say, okay, like, are they ready to go? And what I found was a lot of my friends and colleagues, you know, they would, they would test them, you know, their strength is good. They might do them, you know, put them through some speed tests or whatever, all performance-based. And, which is fine, uh, but they would be missing this link about like about really how to understand the problem that exists for those athletes. Namely, that very often after sport injury, the the rehabilitation is just a small part of the puzzle. If you're talking about getting an athlete back to performance, it's often measured in many many months, if not years. And really, at the end of the day, it's kind of like taking your car to the to the dealership and you know having them sort of hook up. Hook up your, you know, when you have an engine issue, you know, they hook up the computers to figure out what's going on so they can diagnose where the issue is um, in a very similar way. We just didn't have those tools. And so um, that's the second part of the course, which is how do I help, um, you, know, you know, how do I help bridge the gap between the sport performance uh, uh, world and the cl- more clinical sport medicine world? Um, not from the standpoint of trying to train, you know, sport performance people and make them clinicians of talking about allowing them to speak the language a bit more and then to develop their own acumen and their own ways of being able to add to the puzzle of helping athletes get back after, after injury. So with all that said, um, you know, the the first, the first course is a, is a real deep dive into um, the science of, of muscle strength and power um, I call it first principles, you know. But you go back to first principles of, of of physiology, biomechanics. I think they're they're essential, fundamental knowledge bases for for people like ourselves. Um, we try to always connect it back to the real world. Um, we spend a, a big chunk of time looking at movement assessments and where they fit, uh, and and then we we get into neuromuscular neuromuscular testing, and, and one of the techniques, obviously that. Um, has become more commonplace is the use of a a dual force plate system uh, to to evaluate uh, kinetic asymmetry. So we spent a lot of time on that. Um, Course two is a a deep dive into program design. So what I'm trying to do is take all the science and all the testing and all the assessment techniques that we talk about in course one and then really converting it into, uh, you know, some, some, uh, some tangible outcomes for how you can design programs Uh, You know, including, you know, energy system and uh, energy systems and looking at periodization and and a big chunk around uh, return to performance after injury. Um, We have a full course on eccentric training and uh, uh, sort of assessing eccentric strength capacity just because that's often a a specific uh, niche area that we're we're interested in in, uh, attending to. Um, and then, you know, the final part is, um, how strength and conditioning coaches, sport performance, uh, practitioners, sport medicine practitioners can, can think more like a scientist. And so we have a, a, f- a final kind of course where it's about, you know, using, you know, kind of, I call it like white belt skills in the programming language called R, um, you know, I'm not, not there to try and make you a, a code ninja. I'm just trying to, you know, teaching, teaching, teaching somebody who's never coded in their life. Like you don't even understand what what the heck this is, and then how to work with data, how to understand sort of uh, data structure, data cleaning, um, you know, all those pieces of the puzzle. But using that programming language R to streamline processes. So um, I'm sure uh, people who are really expert in R would would uh, would would probably provide uh, criticism to my approach, but it's really meant to be like. You know, you've never done this. How would my brain approach learning this in a really basic way, so you get those skills, and then you can launch yourself into the world of, of uh, you know, becoming a bit more data driven and a bit more independent uh, along that journey. So there you go. That's the courses, and that's where it all came from.
0: I think with the with what you're saying about the your R course as well, I feel like even if your goal isn't to be really competent at coding, just some level of introduction to what coding can do and what it looks like, I I think can be useful just because then you, you know what you may need or who you can find that can do it for you. If if you're not going to, you know, pursue it yourself in a performance Uh, environment.
1: Agreed. I mean, I can remember. So my, my master's is in uh, neuromuscular physiology, exercise physiology is the, was the sort of domain that I was in and, my, in my master's thesis, the the question that we were looking at was uh, looking at the acute effects of whole body vibration on uh, basically on various properties of the neuromuscular system. So we were using, uh, you know, nerve stimulation and looking at the interpolated twitch technique and voluntary muscle activation and, and some other measures, you know, EMG and whatnot. At the time, I can recall sitting down after having collected all my data and literally hand bombing, you know. Hundreds of files where I would go through and find peaks and you know find averages over time frames and it would be like writing them down pen to paper and then inputting this into Excel and making sure I didn't make any mistakes and all that stuff and then you know a long time passed and you know at that time you know not to date myself but coding was just I'd I'd never even thought about that and uh, I can say it was probably about 2011 a guy named Jonathan Tremblay he's a professor at University Montreal and. I was, uh, on a, I was actually in SEP in Paris, France. Uh, we were doing some presentations and I looked over at, at, uh, Jonathan's computer. He was wrapping up his PhD. And I was like, Jonathan, your computer's broken. What, what is all that stuff? Have you been hacked by a virus? <laughs> and he's like, no, no, this is, this is R. And I was like, what? Like our, or, or no, he's like the letter R. And I said, what, what is that? Like, what are you doing? And he's like, Oh, let me show you. And he, he showed me um, at the time it was a he was using gg plots to generate these really nice uh, figures for his for his, uh, PhD and I was like oh my god it's amazing and he's like oh yeah yeah you just code it and you know he's like don't the learning curve is uh, you know uh, is 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 a, a, is definitely uh, slow like you're you're not gonna you, know, you gotta kind of get over the hump but once you're there he's just sort of showing me the power of it and my god is that ever like a turning point in one's career when you literally get, as I say, like, even if it's just kind of yellow belt, green belt skills in coding, where you can kind of do your own thing. Oh, my Lord, does that ever just open up the doors to be able to work with your data, tell stories with your data, you know, generate visuals and and stuff that your your targets, whether they be athletes or coaches, they, they can work with. And I totally agree, you don't have to be uh, coding ninja you just need to know enough to kind of get by and you need to know enough to know when you can ask someone for help to help streamline your processes and make your, your workflows more efficient and that is just essential in my world uh, in terms of of today's skill sets for people working in high performance sport
0: yeah no doubt um i want to kind of cherry pick if i may force velocity first as one of the big topics that you cover sure. um amongst your courses and I think this is something that people can easily now skim over the theory with because of how convenient uh, different devices like velocity-based training devices can be um, and their sort of uh, their visuals for how you display the information. Uh, but I think in your content, there's a lot of detail on the force velocity curve and yeah. how we may want to move it, say, upwards or outwards through specific yeah. training. Yeah. But in the first instance, how, you know, when you're working with an athlete, how do you identify and assess maybe the ideal slope or curve for a certain individual um, yeah. and and the reason i say this is because you know a tractor and an audi as you describe as an analogy may have the same output but have yeah. a different task design
1: yeah no absolutely and um you know that's a it's a um, it's such a hot topic and i think it's such a useful uh, assessment technique um, but I do have, I do have some comments that just to tee this up and, you know, I was one of my, one of my, uh, my mentors and, and the guy that I studied under for many years got him, uh, Dr. Walter Herzog, who's a bit of a legend when it comes to biomechanics. Um, and now his research these days is more, well, these days past, you know, 25, 30 years has been more fundamental looking at the mechanics of how muscles work, uh, and really trying to understand muscle contraction. So he's much he sort of subcellular tissue mechanics, which is you know uh, a mouthful to say at the very least. But Walter uh, his original background was uh, as a track and field coach, and so he is just keenly interested in everything related to sport performance, and he's keenly interested in, in the types of types of uh, research interests that I've got. And so we always had some amazing conversations around this. And the first thing to mention, that I think, is so crucial is. A force velocity relationship depends on how you measure it. And that's a key thing that I think listeners need to understand is that there is this basic muscle property, the force velocity relationship that explains, um, and, it, and it goes back, you know, to the 1930s, it explains the properties of muscle during a uh, concentric muscle action, whereby um, as the velocity of muscle action increases, the, the force generating capacity uh, decreases in a maximally activated muscle at a constant length, which are two other really important parts of the puzzle um, to say, and I'll link this back to testing in a second. Um, But but that that notion that it depends on how you measure it and that it is a maximally activated muscle at a constant length, these are important things because this then starts to shape the types of force velocity relationships that you may measure by virtue of, uh, of the testing that you're doing. Now you expand out to our world where we're looking at, um, you know, elite sport. And um, in the, in the course, I talk a lot about this from kind of some fundamental notions, right? So this idea of intercepts and slope, but really what I would encourage, what I would encourage, you know, anybody listening who's interested in this to do is remember that how you do this depends on how you measure it. And what you want to make sure is that for your, your, your situation that you're in, that you develop a robust methodology where you can understand the error and you can understand what you're you're obtaining and then understand the relationship with performance. And so um, to that end, in the, in the course, I talk a little bit more, I kind of move away from a force velocity profile to uh, the term I call it sometimes a functional force velocity relationship. And by functional, I mean just some sort of task, obviously in the, in the, in the, in the course I talk a lot about jumping, but using some sort of task with various loading conditions where you can sort of create um, uh, um, what, what the relationship is between some sort of uh, uh, velocity measure and, and then, and then uh, change in, in loading conditions. So in this case, uh, when when we develop this uh, in the course, what you'll see is the, the dependent variable. So what we're measuring is the takeoff velocity and jumping, which we are able to obtain a relatively... Good like we we you know just sort of by virtue of the types of stuff that we do in our lab we we know you know it's a it's a relatively stable measure um it's got good reliability um what we put on as our independent variable so the variable that we're we're changing is the loading condition and in this case we we're talking about the load on a trap bar uh jump squat and and really at the end of the day um not to not to kind of uh um sort of uh, uh, i guess uh undercut the question in but yes, we get slope. Um, Yes, we get, you know, intercepts, Uh, the intercepts, um, you know, are obviously um, because of the way we're measuring this stuff. It's, it's a, there, 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 there can be a lot of variability in them. But what I would say is once you've done this and you've measured well, how you extract variables to help sort of create frameworks of monitoring can be extremely, um, Nuanced, like you can you can create you can you can use these the way you need to to accomplish the goals given the environment you're in. And I'll just give you one example of this. Um, formerly working with uh, one of our uh, our strength and conditioning coaches at the Sport Institute, Grand Chalice. But we had a, a problem with our bobsledders where we didn't have really good sort of off ice predictors of uh, bobsled push performance, where they would go in and sort of push the sled. Um, when we did these measurements. The 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 thing that we could extract from the functional force velocity relationship, as described uh, before, would be. Um, I use this example in the course is we we looked at um, a loading condition that was similar to the types of loads that they would use when they're pushing a bobsleigh. So in this case, uh, it's about one hundred thirty three kilo uh, external load, and we extra- extrapolated using the the linearity of that of that relationship to uh to actually predict what the takeoff velocity would have been with 133 kilos had they jumped with it and you know that's an example of you know you're not going to read in any textbook that's not looking at a slope that's not looking at an intercept that's looking at something very specific to the context i'm in but you know if you if you, if you do good measurements and you kind of realize that how you do this sort of depends on you know depends on your context uh the, what you obtain depends on how you measure it Gosh, there's there's a whole bunch of flexibility there for practitioners to really, you know, create their own knowledge and their own uh, measurements of, of force-velocity relationships in a functional way to to help drive uh, their understanding of uh, human performance and adaptation of training.
0: Mm. And you know, we can create arbitrary thresholds or ob- objectives and the standards for uh, what we want to see on on the graph. and And I get why that's useful. Um, I think you know simplistically we maybe have moved away from this idea that more force or velocity is always advantageous to somebody. Yeah. Um, but of, and of course there's scenarios where we don't always want to layer on, say more output to the system, perhaps if uh, technique is suboptimal or falls outside an ideal symmetry index, how do you, you know, how do you personally navigate cross comparing the kinematics or the, or the movement technique as the sort of movement uh, piece Against kinetics and output, and I'm asking you this because I think the the quality of the underpinning uh, kinetics is important to know as well
1: yeah, no, I mean i and i and I think uh probably the best example here that 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 I can take that can help really delineate the the importance of having you know I always say it's like you're not we're not coaching a spreadsheet, we're not training a spreadsheet. We're training a, a real live human being, right? So it's it, it, and and that goes. It works both ways. It works both in the sense that we realize that measurement can't solve all our problems, and on the other hand, if you're not measuring, you're likely to overlook or overestimate um, the impact that you're really having on the the athlete and their and their adaptation to the to the to the medicine you prescribe them, which is your training programs, right? I mean, that's what. You do and i do and everybody else does is you sit down you put pen to paper you write a program and your hypothesis is your hunch is if i give you this it's going to make you better in specific ways that's kind of a key tenant of, of the types of work that we do and um i think in the case of injury this is an example where you need to kind of holistically view the athlete from the idea exactly like you said how they move um you know the kinetics and uh, in, and in, in, and i'll say simply like how how they're uh, applying force and absorbing energy and whatnot Um, as they move about, and and having ways uh like you know, example of being a functional force velocity profile where you can um really characterize basic muscle properties, basic, basic functional properties of the of the of the neuromuscular system to track adaptation over time. So back to the injured athlete, I'll give you an example. It's a case study example that we talk about in the course. Um, uh, in this case, it's a, it's a, an athlete who suffers a, a horrendous knee injury. I mean, essentially a, a full knee dislocation. And what we talk about is, is, uh, at that. So as the athlete is coming along through their rehabilitation, and I'm not talking rehab and measured in a matter of months, if we're talking, you know, two years to get back to sport really is what this, you know, it took a year just to get, you know, sort of some level of normal day-to-day functional capacity back. Um, but shortly thereafter, I mean, the athlete's uh, healing capacity and their physical fitness capacities are just massively impressive. I mean, the athlete actually hits a personal record in the uh, personal best in power clean, um, you know, shortly after, you know, a, a you, know, few, you know, a few few mesocycles of training. He's just, just doing unbelievably well, right? So this is great. Now, the naive strength coach uh, might say, well, wow, that's great. I mean, you just hit a new personal best in a, in a power clean. Um, I think you're going to be ready to go here uh, sooner than we think. Like we might actually be able to accelerate your return to sport because you're obviously doing so well in the gym. However, when you really break down his his movement patterns, when you really break down his strength capacities, what was absolutely clear was, despite the fact that he was able to hit a personal best in the power clean, that when we watched how he moved and we measured the kinetics, in this case, uh, using our our our, our functional Force velocity uh, test, which was uh, you know essentially measuring the takeoff velocity as a as our a dependent variable. So basically, takeoff velocity and jumping across three loading conditions. It was absolutely clear that this individual was lacking um, eccentric strength capacity and sort of more generally movement control through phases of movement where movements when he was putting on the brakes. So what this appeared as was elevated kinetic asymmetries. Especially with greater loads, only in the eccentric deceleration phase of a counter movement jump, we were also able to tie this back with high speed video and uh, and and other you know other kinematic measurements to clearly show that when he was in those phases of movement, that his his, his general control of that movement um, you could you could observe you could observe visually that there there were were deficits that needed to be addressed. And, and why this is so important and why I think you know your question matters so much is that it's a really good example of taking um, a basic muscle property, i.e the force velocity relationship, which you've, we've known about since the 1930s after AV Hill's seminal studies and work, um, you know expanding it into modern day strength and power labs like many institutions have and, and, and professional teams have, and developing good tests. so in this case doing counter movement jumps with, no external load, 30% of external load uh, or 30% of body mass and 60% of body mass added as external load, breaking down the jump, not only just looking at how high did you jump, but actually looking at the kinetics. So now looking at the force signature of the individual in phases of movement that matter, i.e. how he unloads, how he puts on the brakes and how he pushes into the ground to get himself up and off the plates. And then really using the clues that are sitting in front of you to drive decision-making. So yes, his, his power clean is great, but when you break down the kinetics, the kinematics, and you look at these fundamental, you know, I would just say fundamental muscle properties, but at the whole body level, it's like, holy geez, we're really missing stuff here. And, um, I'll add one more kind of flavor to the, to the question is that now that you know what matters in the sense that you've measured something and you can clearly see where the deficits exist you can actually target your training to be able to address those deficits and why this matters so much is that i can recall the first program we designed to help kind of bridge this gap Um, the individual went back and trained in their hometown for uh, a period of about four to five weeks um, you know, as a, as a strength and conditioning coach, my bias would be that I'm an amazing strength and conditioning coach. And of course, my programs are absolutely bulletproof. And if I give you this program, you're going to do nothing but improve and become, you know, uh, amazing at the things I'm trying to train. But if you're not measuring it, you can't change it. Lo and behold, the individual comes back after their first training block on my magical program and they have gotten worse. They are actually worse at the things that were previously identified as gaps. And the reason that they were worse is that they were training on top of bad movement patterns. So in this case, he was this individual was training to maximize the load on the bar, not training to maximize the movement competencies that we were trying to work on. So there's a difference there, right? If I'm trying to lift to maximize the amount of load I have on the bar, um, that may be a different movement uh, competency than if I'm trying to train to ensure that I'm changing a deficit that i've observed in an eccentric deceleration phase that may relate to my you know to my overall development as i get back to sport and so it was not the case that the athlete came back after 6 weeks with magical magical improvement in fact it was the opposite they'd regressed even more which was another clue you know hey okay what are, where what are we missing well what we're missing is You're training with the wrong intention. And this is where I think your point was was so brilliant at the beginning there, Andrew. The question is that we're not always training just to improve the capacity, right? Because if 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 he's trying to improve the capacity, well, he should just keep going the way he's going. But that's not what we were trying to change. We were trying to change his eccentric deceleration ability, both in terms of the kinematics and the kinetics. And uh, that requires a different intention, a different purpose in training, a different focus for him. And, uh, it was not until that next block that we were able to address it and bridge the gap, um, and, and move him forward in, in the, in the appropriate direction to help kind of support him as, as, as he made the transition back to sport. So, Mm. yeah, that's, I think it's a great example. Uh, well, it's a great question, but I think it's, that's, that, that is a, when you talk about injury, it's a great example where for your listeners, you can employ kind of a broad approach to this, uh, be Sherlock Holmes, try to figure out the problem and then, you know, design programs that are going to change the things that matter and just don't expect that your programs are always going to work. So this is a great kind of accountability, you know, when you're doing this in a monitoring framework, it's a great way to kind of ensure that you're moving the needle in the right direction.
0: Yeah, it's a good, good, good amount of detail and a very good summary there. When, when you test and collect data on athletes we we often have to kind of follow a strict logistical plan especially in team sports to keep things or or groups to keep things on a schedule and get athletes you know on and off the rack or on and off the force plates in a timely manner um how much kind of opportunity do you have or, or how much kind of stock do you place in having the opportunity to question athletes and what i mean what i mean by this is You can see something on the screen that sits as an outlier in the data, um, even if you just spot it quickly visually. But we may sometimes, the way things get structured logistically, miss the kind of human factor like the athlete's technique belief or reasoning for why they move like that. Or, I don't know, maybe they're in pain. How, you know, is that something that you factor in, I don't know, maybe time-wise or um, when you are testing?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I, I factored in not just, not just, uh, I think it's a, it's so essential for, for, for us to realize that, you know, it's not just time and it's not just on that day, but you know, if you don't have uh trust and buy-in from, from the athlete, you know, all bets are off. And I'll be honest with you. I think that sometimes, um, you know, All the testing that we do can be overwhelming and it can be uh, too much, uh, especially if you don't have that foundation of trust. So not only is it sort of like carving off time where you can appropriately have the conversations and dive into things, but you have to take stock before you even do that to say, "Do do I have somebody on the other side of the table here who actually trusts me and actually wants to hear what I have to say? And, you know, I, I, bring that up only because, um, I don't think it matters how much, you know, it doesn't matter what your credentials are. Um, you know, athletes need to first buy into you and your processes in order for them to sort of be open to, to the types of things that, you know, we're suggesting here. Um, I would a hundred percent agree that, you know, when, like when you have routine monitoring and an athlete's about to go kick off a training session and you measure something that doesn't seem quite right. I always pause and I ask the question: Is is this real? Did I actually measure something that's a stable movement pattern here, or a sta- stable, you know, stable measurement of something that, if I was to do it again and again and again, would be there uh, and and would not change? And the reason I think that's so important is sometimes it's easy to see one test and to start getting very granular and and making decisions around what the app, you know, what should or shouldn't be done. Um, and that, I just don't think that's the way to go. So number one is, you know, if you, if you measure something and, and it's, it seems, it seems outside of the norm, uh, push the pause button, ask yourself. And again, it's the curious coach who pays attention, right? That's my uh, Dan Paff quote, the curious coach who pays attention. What, what could be driving what I just saw there? Is it a one-off is the athlete, you know, is there something else going on? There are all sorts of things that might be at play. If you come in again, and let's say you make another measurement, and now you say, oh, there it is again. Okay, is it bad? Is it, is it associated with injury? Is it associated with apprehension? Is it associated with something else that's going on? Um, that's another important reflection point before anything is said to the athlete about what might be happening. And then I think the third step the step you know, the third point which is really where your question picks up is okay now you're going to do something about this what's the strategy and I am a firm believer that if I have the level of trust that you know I need in order to have these conversations I like nothing better than to carve off some time and to to make you know to make a training session in the strength and power lab so we'll go in we'll be like all right let's do let's do your power cleans on it, on the dual force plate system. Let's do some trap bar jump squats. Let's, let's work on some, let's work on some of your lifts in the, in the gym. Let's, 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 let's see what's going on. And then let's use the measurement as an educational tool to back up what we're feeling and what we're observing. And I think on that level, you know, um, I think, I think it requires a bit of time and I, and I like nothing better than to, to, to find that time, but to make it purposeful, not when the athlete's feeling you know, like they're under the gun or being measured or being evaluated, that we're doing it now in a collaborative way, sort of some shared purpose, shared decision-making. This isn't me trying to judge them and to you know, find things that might hold them back. It's about me trying to optimize my program and optimize what I'm going to give them to, to do and, and to have them understand where the focal points need to be. And, um, I think at the end of the day, that's, um, you know, those are some of my favorite days. I, I love doing that. And, and I love doing that, especially when I've got a, you know, a willing sport medicine practitioner, like a physiotherapist or an osteopath or somebody who's working with me from their angle. And then man, it's magic. Like you got, you got the athlete, you got the strength coach, you got the, 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 the clinician. We're all coming from our perspectives and we're problem solving and we're using data to keep ourselves honest in the moment um i think it's massive um and it really does help us get you know get get better context and better opportunities for conversation like you said what could be driving things there's so many layers and factors here and uh whether it's pain injury all those things like they're doing it because that's how they think they should be doing it um we need to we need to have those conversations with uh with uh, you know th- with the notion of uh you know uh shared decision-making and and sort of uh, working together to solve problems in mind.
0: Mm. And, you know, I think this is pretty good segue. Our audience is is very mixed, especially between physios and strength and conditioning coaches. And to preface this next point or topic, uh, I hope people are leaning on me as the host as I state a bit of an observation in practice as I'm a physio and a coach, so I'm not taking a stance either way. But as stereotypes in the rehab process, S&C coaches can sometimes be focused on habitually cueing or picking mechanical solutions for changing a movement pattern post-injury versus, um, you know, more traditional physios may be over-focused occasionally on pain and influencing sensory input to change movement patterns post-injury. And I don't think either is necessarily right or wrong. And there's good examples of both professions where people are uh, inclusive, inclusive of broader considerations, but I think your program design course does a far nicer job than I can do explaining this under your uh, common internal constraints section. Would would you be happy to talk through this or, you know, your consideration and strategies for improving movement competencies or patterns post injury?
1: Oh yeah, I mean, I think I think uh And in the course, um, you know, we, I use Newell's model, um, sort of that constraints led approach uh, to movement. And only because I think it's a framework that can help, I should really think it can help practitioners understand a little, like zooming out to 30,000 feet. If, if you are focused on as a clinician focused on the clinical pieces that are, are, you know, are important to you. And I think sometimes about like my, what I've learned from my surgeon friends, a big big part of uh you know sort of going into this transition and and you know when i was doing my phd in medical science was spending i mean i don't know how many days lots of days up in the or with with a surgeon that was on my committee and just you know watching him do surgeries and 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 just trying to understand like where are you coming from like what are you seeing and he'd go in and he'd scope and he'd look and he'd tell me about you know the anatomy and how the surgery was going and the graph size and you know, these, these would be, you know, these would be concerns I would have for this person doing this coming back. And here's the problems I see and I face. And I'll be honest with you. Like when you, when you start to see this, you start to realize that, you know, what we often identify with is our role and the badge that we wear. So if you're a clinician, you're seeing things that absolutely do matter. It's just not an exclusive list of the only things that matter. And likewise with a strength coach, it's not, it's not that the queuing mechanical side, those things, those matter too. It's just FYI for the strength coach. It's just not an exclusive list. There are other things and and there are other considerations that if we took a moment to be, to be sort of, Oh, I see where you're coming from. I get it now. I see why you might ask me not to do these certain movements at this phase in the, in the, in the rehabilitation because you're looking at these sort of tissue healing considerations or this pain cycle or this thing that's happening. And, um, I think where, where I tried to sort of help, help practitioners kind of grasp that is with the Newell's model. So in Newell's model, you know, it's this notion that, you know, you've got, Uh, movement strategies that are shaped by uh, various constraints. And, you know, there's uh, internal constraints, there's uh, task constraints and environmental constraints. There's sort of perception and action of the individual as they're, you know, working through their world. And and obviously all these things work together in terms of what ends up displaying as the dominant movement strategy. And anybody who's ever worked with you know, someone with chronic low back pain, or someone who's been scared of coming back from sport after an injury, and they've changed how they've moved, you'll know that sometimes these movement patterns that emerge can be problematic, and they can they can get in the way of of sport performance. And so with the notion of Newell's model, where we're looking at internal constraints, I'm trying to I'm trying to help the individuals involved, to switch from being a, well, I'm a strength coach. This is what I do. This is how I see these problems. I hand off to the physiotherapist or whatever to let them do their thing where they go and solve problems. To this idea of, of, of being Sherlock Holmes together. How do you work together to understand each other's point of view? And how do you work together in order to make um, make sense of the potential, the potential factors that may be contributing to what you see? So... Starting point number one to your question is, um, I, I actually did this presentation for Brett Bartholomew in, in a in a course that he, or a, uh, he had a, um, a, a sort of an online event that he did uh, a, you know about five or six months ago. But I said I the title of the course of the presentation was along the lines of um, I think I was a, a better leader when I was in kindergarten because I knew how to follow. Um, and the, the notion here is that when you're working in an environment with other professionals who have different points of view, you got to know when to follow and you got to know when to lead. And the, the first starting point here is, you know, back to changing these sort of stubborn movement uh, strategies that may emerge after injury is how do I lead in my space, but also display strong followership skills to my team? So if I'm working with a clinician who's got a perspective on whether it was the injury, the secondary injuries that were suffered, the pain cycle in it, whatever it might be, I've got to display very strong followership skills to them to, to show them that I'm allowing them to take the lead on the domains of their expertise uh, or the, the, the their domain, their domains and areas of expertise. And on the flip side, I need to display my leadership when it comes to the things that you know, maybe are within my areas of expertise. And and that, that to me is crucial, right? So you've got to have a strong team and you've got to have a team that can work together and you've got to have a team that can send and share signals about who's leading, who's following and how do we work together as a team. Um, that nine times out of 10 is where things break down to trying to change a stubborn movement strategy is that people are working in isolation, they're doing their own thing. You know, we've got people doubling up on the same, strategies or sometimes conflicting with each other because they're not talking and they're not working together in a, in a team oriented way to help the, the target athlete, uh, in, 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 involved. So that's number one. Um, number two is I, I, really do like to take a comprehensive look at this idea of potential internal constraints. Like what, what, what could be shaping the movement strategy here, fear, uh, pain range of motion. Uh, you know, like think about uh, individuals who, uh We've seen this several times now, we want to do a little paper on it, but individuals who develop a Cyclops lesion and sort of uh, are, are, you know, at that stage where it's slightly unclear whether they do or they don't have the issues, surgeons reluctant to go back in, um, you know, very often we'll measure, we'll measure stuff in the strength of power lab that will be sort of like elevated asymmetries in certain phases of the jump, um, you know, sort of this inability or unwillingness to really extend the knee joint, um, terminal range, uh, muscle activation issues. But all of these things, as an example, back to the, to, the, to the question is, if we're able to have a broad view and we're able to sort of understand where each other, you know, each other is coming from and we can speak each other's language a little bit better, we can start to develop, you know, theories, strategies and ideas on what we want to do in a cohesive way to change and, and modify a, a movement strategy that might be considered to be problematic. Um, and so, you know, from there, uh, I mean, I, I think that's where I think the the, the Newell's model helps, right? Because it kind of gets you out of your own lane a little bit and starts to let you see, okay, right? Like all of these things work together. <laughs> the pain cycle is important. Range of motion is important. Um, strength at the joint is important. What's happening with sweat, swelling and, and and, you know, tissue health is important. But equally, what's happening above and below the joint are also important including, you know, uh, you know, things that might be, you know, uh, a little bit, you know, uh, distal from from the area, you know, the area that, that's having, having the, the issue. Um, and, you know, again, if we can kind of lay that foundation with a good team, and we can start to sort of speak the same language, I, I think that's honestly the best way to, to get after it. Um, so I know that wasn't necessarily... Like the nuts and bolts of it, uh, in terms of my strategy, uh, you know, in terms of like what I would, you know, how I might actually approach it. But that, that to me is is are really a few cornerstones of, of making this happen. Because we get tied up in our own heads and in our own roles, and we stop talking to each other, and it becomes almost impossible to to develop a coherent strategy on how to how to how to you know tackle these complex uh, challenges, like an athlete with a movement strategy that we're trying to influence and it's just stubborn and not, and we're, and we're not having much success. Um,
0: mm. yeah. No, I thought we did, did a brilliant job, uh, giving that overview then. Cause, um, there's a lot of nuggets in there, but you, I, you know, I didn't give you a overly specific context. I just sort of <laughs> forced you to, um, uh, vibe with that one a little bit, but, Matt, I really thank you for your time. I think across this a- episode, you've done a- an excellent job of hitting some basic sciences, some, uh, you know, some practical testing considerations, and then also looping in and balancing it with sort of human factors. So um, I-, I know you're a busy man and I, I really do thank you for your time and-, and your your contribution today in the episode. Oh,
1: hey, no, thanks very much. Um, great to be here and, and uh, have a, t- a chance to chat um, yeah, I'm just, uh, I'm just, uh, equally appreciative of, uh, of you, uh, giving me a, a second opportunity to, to have a, have a conversation. So thank you.
0: I know you've got obviously a busy day job and you consult, but you know, you do have courses. What, what have you got going on or coming out is, you know, and where can people find you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, the courses, uh, you can go to my website, uh, www.jordanstrength.com um the courses can all be found there um you can buy the four courses individually or you can buy the 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 you know, all forces courses together in, in all courses together in in what's called the GSEP system so it's kind of a bringing everything together and so you save a bit of money if you do that uh but what i would say like i i try to keep free content on my site free resources um and we do twice a year we do a, a course launch where the prices come down um it's sort of a you get some other sort of, I would just say sort of more exclusive offers with that with that time of year. So if your listeners are interested, the next course launch will be in December. And, uh, and we usually do one in December and one in sort of June, July-ish. And, uh, you know, they should just uh, come stay tuned on my social media channels. Uh, my, my handle is at Jordan Strength. Uh, go to my website, uh, check out the courses, um, sign up to my, my, my newsletter. That way you're staying sort of abreast of what's going on. Uh, but today, if you wanted to go buy the courses, they are available. You can pop on my site and, uh, you know, uh, they're, they're all there and you can learn about them. And and of course, if anyone has questions, always do my best to, to give you a personal response to, you know, if if you have got questions or or things you want to chat about. So feel free to email me or reach out over my social media and and we can, we can uh, talk about your questions as it pertains to, uh, courses or anything else that, that we're offering
0: cool and we'll as usual we'll uh we'll put links to your website and your social media handles in the episode description and also in the in the show notes for today's episode so um no that's brilliant mate and I I do thank you for coming back on and um there's endless topics I could probably try and drag you back for and, and pick your brains on for people's benefit
1: amazing yeah, I'm happy to do
0: it so yeah let's uh let's let's put that in the books cool perfect thanks mate Big thanks to Dr. Matt Jordan for coming back on the show. Don't forget, if you're interested in his online courses, then use our Inform Performance 25% discount code when you purchase them. Simply type in INFORMPOD2021 as an uppercase code uh, to apply the discount on the price. Speaking of education, head to informperformance.com where, as usual, you can find our articles, episodes, and our show notes but topically our own educational courses and webinars too. We will have some great webinars and courses coming out consistently, starting with the Sporting Hand and Wrist with Ian Gatt. Additionally, if you want to hear about these updates in real time, then find us and follow us on Instagram at informperformance or on Twitter at InformPod. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Informed Performance Podcast with me, Andy McDonald, and catch us next time for more performance and sports medicine insights.